Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Court Squash podcast. On today's show, we have the second part of the Alex Goff interview. Here he takes us through his squash playing career, his decision to join the PSA after university and how he got into his current role as the CEO of the PSA World Tour. We also have the second part of the Stevie Richardson interview, a man of a similar vintage to Alex Goff, who post-university had thought about PSA but went the other route and in some ways had the best of both worlds. Stevie is one of the best teammates anyone could ever wish to have and certainly one of the best teammates that I ever had the privilege to play alongside with for Ireland. Not because he won every single match, but because you always knew what you were going to get. You always knew he was going to perform. He was always going to leave it all out there. And if his opponents didn't know, they found out very quickly that Stevie meant business and he was going to be tough to beat. And anyone who who did beat him were going to have to play well because Stevie wasn't giving them anything. And it, it also, that, that's very infectious and very inspiring to see. And it always rubbed, rubbed off well on me and, and some of the other guys. And also, if you see him around with a scruffy beard and scraggy hair, don't be fooled by that. You put that man in a white tracksuit and he looks like an angel, a supermodel. <laughs> Anyways, look, we hope you enjoy the show. We hope you enjoy both parts of the interviews. And yeah, here we go. Stevie's up first. Okay, guys, delighted to welcome a teammate of mine, a really good friend, 2002 national champion who, upon victory, he didn't shout, put his arms in the air and say yes. He pointed to a couple of his pals in the crowd and said, nobody ever beat Stevie Richardson 15 times in a row. (laughs) (laughs) He's the oldest man who's ever played the world championships at a tender age of 47. Back in, it was only a few months ago. And he is a 13-time British amateur, nowadays called the Jesters champion. And has about 100 and a lot of caps for Ireland. Stevie, thanks a million for coming on. How are you doing, man? Thanks very much. Cheers, Arthur. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. I actually I actually think uh, I might have beaten you more than 15 times in a row. <laughs> I actually was thinking that tonight when I was actually thinking what you're going to ask me. And you probably are close to it. But you're getting old. I am, yeah, yeah. I'm catching up on you, Stevie. <laughs> so, Jesters. So, you've won 13 Jesters titles, Stevie. I mean, you're in great company there. You have Jonah Barrington's got a couple, Jeff Hunt, Mohit Bilakan. I mean, yeah. I mean, none of them have won close to 13. Talk us a little bit about the Jesters event. Um, well, the, the Jesters um, competition is known as the Jesters Trophy. It's the, the British Amateur Championships for the Jesters Trophy. Yep. Um, before squash went professional, this was effectively... I would call it the World Open of Squash. You know, it was, it was the British Open before the British Open was ever established. And, you know, in the, probably 1979, I think it was, squash went professional, and there's a man by the name of Peter Chalk decided he didn't necessarily want squash to go professional. So he decided to carry on the Jester's Trophy in the British Amateur Championships um, at his own cost and at, during his own time. And he has held it now for 40 years. Um, he's actually retiring this year at a, final age of 86 um, and he decided to hold on to this tournament and run it every year um, the point about the tournament was for the first sort of probably 10 years after it was you know an amateur competition and the professionals were barred from playing in it the standard was still huge you have some great players from you know the UK and around the world who still won it the likes of Mike Corby um, who's a pretty incredible guy who played international sport for Great Britain in two different sports on the same day where he played hockey and squash for Great Britain in one day. Okay. Um, uh, John Leslie is a very famous, you know, English squash player who's been around. Stuart Courtney, who's, you know, was a long-time manager of the, and coach of the England squash team. They've all got names who are on the trophy. And to be fair to those guys, they still turn up 
every year to watch the finals and be part of the finals evening, which is just a, a great event on the first Monday in February. But since that time, the tournament has, you know, the standard of participant has dropped off um, versus what it was. Because nowadays, you know, if you're good at squash as a young kid, you will generally turn professional in some form or another. So, but there's still a lot of us who are working and playing and enjoying the sport. And some people who have come back from playing professionally, you know, to start working and then they become eligible to play the tournament. Perfect example of that is Tim Garner. Tim won the tournament as a student, I think, when he was at Loughborough University, disappeared out of the tournament for probably eight to 10 years and then came back. And Tim and I have had some fantastic battles over the years as to, you know, who was winning. We played in the final a lot. And interestingly, I think we were close. I had like eight or nine titles and Tim had six or seven. And he always thought he could catch me. And then one year, I think it was that one of those years, he was actually, to be fair to Tim, he was injured when he played in the final and I beat him. And um, he turned around and said, that's it. I can't catch you now. So he went into the over 35s event and has dominated that ever since. Plus also he runs the tournament now. So he does that all as well. He's incredible. And he's left it to me to fight off the young kids who are still wanting and coming in every year thinking this will be my year. <laughs> and that has been the case until this year where I lost to a young guy um, who plays in the Surrey League called Jamie Wild. And I said, Jamie's had been out for me for a number of years to win this tournament and has fallen at the last hurdle a few times. But this year he uh, he came back from two love down and took me 3-2. So maybe I am human after all. Nobody uh, beats Jamie Wild 15 times in a row. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, look, you've got a, I mean, squash has been a massive part of your life, life Stevie. I mean, I've been fortunate enough. I was, when I turned pro and I, I moved to England first, I quite often stay with you and Kelly. You guys looked after me really well. You were a massive inspiration and role model, along with Derek Ryan playing for Ireland. You've played for Ireland for over 30 years, have you? Close to 30 years? No, it's 29 years. 29 years. <laughs> okay. Uh, so 29 years, you've played for Ireland. You've won a national championship. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of highlights there. But is there anything that really stands out, a standout memory of your squash playing career from... 67 years ago to present the fact that i'm still playing yeah. and still competing stands out um although i don't find it strange to me it's it's part of what i do right yeah. i get up in the morning i go to work i come home at night and i generally probably go and play a league match you know so still playing that's that's amazing things that i've done in the game i haven't really done that much when you look at it on a proper scale right when you look at real professionals and real people who've achieved a lot i've achieved a lot like i'm playing league two football standard versus where you get to the top players in the world but within my own little world things that stand out to me there's like three things a year generally and that's when it used to be the Irish Nationals in December they're now in February but when they were in December was that would have been the first point of the year which was really important then the British Amateurs which is the you know the first weekend of February um, was always really important and then you know making the Irish team to play in the Europeans at the end of the season was always a culmination of the season to say, look, has my season been good or bad? Have I made a mess of it or what? Um, and that's really been, you know, pulling on a green shirt for me is, you know, um, probably just the highlight of every year to go out there and continue to do it and to ruin some young aspiring professional's career when they look at me and say, who's the guy with the grey beard coming on here? This is ridiculous. And then you get their coach, their coach turn around and send to them, do not think that. Yeah, right. uh, not only it's, the grey beard, the grey beard with the can of coke. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. First ever Europeans we played, Stevie. 
Yep. Thank <laughs> you, love. Fortunately, you didn't have the grey beard at that point, though. A little bit younger back then. Because that well, man who just took my soul. Stuart, <laughs> yeah. you're in, you know, a lot of company has done the same thing. Still <laughs> doing it. I'm also proud that I did eventually get revenge a couple of years later, I think. Yes. Yeah, I'm yes, you certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, did you, did you ever consider playing PS PSA? I know you're proud that you've played amateur and you've always sort of looked looked upon yourself as someone that adheres to the principles of amateurism, but did it ever cross your mind to maybe join the tour and give it a crack and see what you could achieve? Yeah, um, it did. So in my last year of university, I toyed with it. Um, you know, being brutally honest, the World Juniors I played in um, 1990 in Paderborn was dominated by England or by, you know, call it British Isles squash in the fact that the four final, four semi-finalists were English. So you had Simon Park, David Campion, Mark Allen, and Aidan Harrison. They were the four semi-finals. Pete Nichol was in that World Juniors. I think Pete got beaten in the last 16. You know, you had those names. You know, John Parr was in it as well, although he was very young. Um, he was, I think John Parr was three in the Canadian team um, at that time. Um, but I looked at that and I sort of said, I'm a good squash player, but I'm nowhere near these guys. And for me to earn a living from squash, I'd have to be up there because, you know, Looking at it, using as a British housing, I wasn't even in the top five in the UK. You know, where would I have been in world ranking terms and stuff like that? And I just looked at it and these guys were just, at that stage in life, they were better than me. I probably was quite sheltered by it and understanding how good a player I could have been, but I wasn't as good as them. So there was always a factor in me where my father also said to me, he said, look, you can do what you want in life, but I want you to get an education first. So I was always going to go to university, always going to get an education, and then I could decide what I wanted to do. And, and to be fair, that year that I finished university, there wasn't anything in the back of my mind. If I don't get a job and something doesn't work out, it's always on the cards. Fortunately, I would say, or unfortunately, I managed to wrangle a, a job in a graduate scheme in one of the investment banks in London, in the city of London. And, you know, the rest is history. You know, the job that I got, I couldn't turn down nor would I have ever wanted to. Um, and the fact was, you know, I could have played squash and not made the money to live my life, whereas I got this opportunity to go into a very competitive environment and still play squash. And looking, looking, you know, 30 years beyond, I've had the best of both worlds. You know, I, you know I've not said I've been successful at what I've done, but I've had a job for 30 years. I've earned money for 30 years, but I've still been able to participate in the squash world, almost like an interlooper in coming in and playing in events and playing against like guys like Arthur and yourselves and the Europeans and stuff and worlds, and then basically go back to my day job and do what I do normally. Um, so look, I, I count myself as really, really lucky that I didn't ever choose to play squash professionally because I didn't have the stress of putting food on the table for myself or, you know, future of a family. But I also would say that there's probably going to be an inkling always in my life that how good could have I have been? And, I can, everyone can say, oh, you could have been this, you could have been that. It's all rubbish because no one will ever know how good I could have been because I didn't do it, you know. So it's a, you know, it's a bit like the, we, Arthur and I have had this conversation before about the GOAT thing. You know, who's the greatest player of all time? Who knows? They're all different in their own ways. And it's, it's just cool to hear you talk about, you know, like constantly challenging yourself year after year against these young guys because um, 
I kind of feel the same, but a, a lot of people I played with and against in, in the U.S. college squash system, it is interesting. Like a lot of people don't seek out a ton of competition post-college in, in, in the U.S. And even in Canada, it can drop off a little bit where like I, I've just kind of like rekindled my love for that uh, competition and like playing a few extra tournaments here and there and was planning on playing the Canadian Nationals. But you know, I, I just find that, that awesome that, you know, 29 years in and you're still, still going at the young bucks to, uh, to keep them, keep them out. Yeah. I suppose that's just a, pardon? I still, like, still play at a great level. It's still a massive benchmark for any young, like you were a benchmark when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18, as the new young crop that are there today. Well, you want to keep them honest. I've said before, like, I don't think I should be playing for Ireland anymore. And realistically, if everybody who played squash in Ireland who hasn't gone to the college scene was there, I probably wouldn't be on the Irish squash team in the last three, four years. I'll hold my hand up to that. The fact is the system is what it is. They go away and we're still there. But I like to think that anybody who plays for Ireland earns that right to play for Ireland. And that right is, at the moment, to beat me because I'm at the lower end of the team. And if you're not good enough to beat me, you're damn sure not going to be good enough to win for Ireland at the Europeans. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I totally get that it's the same as well with you know with the nationals I mean I still love playing I still want to play but I love the idea I don't like the idea but I'm, I've, I've made peace with the idea it's probably a better way of putting it that eventually someone's going to beat me and I look forward to that day shaking the youngster's hand and say deadly man congrats they're all after you know so as opposed to just like stopping and not playing and just handing it over no well look there's a <clears throat> for us who love the game of squash there's a competitive spirit to it and as much as you have to admit your, your standard may be dropping or things may be hard, you're not training as hard as what you do or whatever the justification is, you still don't lose that competitive spirit of wanting to prove yourself. You know, and I've had situations where I know some people do do that and I just don't understand it. You know, because if you've been competitive for most of your life, why do you suddenly want to stop being competitive? It just doesn't make sense to me. No, I totally agree. Stuart, where's your squash racket? I need revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't think there'd be much competition there. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I don't really play at all anymore. And one of the reasons is because I feel like I'm always impressed with how well you've maintained your level. And I feel like my level has dropped off so much that it's not enjoyable anymore to play it like so far off what I have played at in the past. Whereas you seem like you've been able to, you're obviously not playing as well as you were in your prime, but you seem to have retained a pretty high level over the years. Hang on, Stu, he's still in his prime. Huh? I hit my prime. <laughs> yeah. He's in it, man. <laughs> but is there anything, anything you put that down to? Like, just your passion for the game? Or is it being smart with your training? Or Certainly not being smart with my training. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, it's, I'd say probably two things. One, I love the game. And I love to compete. Whatever it is, could it be tiddlywinks, golf, squash, whatever. I love to compete. Squash is something I, I'm quite good at competing at and playing on the standard. But there's also a, a very sort of defining character to this is that I've never had to go and play squash to put my dinner on the table. I've never had that pressure or that focus that it's the only thing in my life. So I, I can totally appreciate seeing professional squash players when they swap players, stop playing professionally, they stop playing squash. I get that because their lives have been dedicated to this thing and their bodies maybe not coping anymore. And they've had their time and they've done their thing. 
you look at mine, I've just gone, I've elongated it and not done it all at once. And just instead of doing it over 15 years, I've done it over 30 odd years. And I just don't have that same, not the word's not focused, but the word is more like that same intensity of needing to do it. And I can totally appreciate when you, you've stopped playing professionally, Stuart, and your level starts to drop off and there's players you're playing and you think, oh, I should be beating them and I'm not because I'm not good enough because I haven't done the training or haven't done X or Y. That tells me that you're not ready to stop competing. Right? That tells me you're just frustrated about competing. Right? And you're going to find it in something else. And I presume you found it in your running where you're now competing against yourself and you're running to better your times. So there's still that competitive nature to you in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I say, one of the things I you said you love competing. I'm not sure I love competing, but I love challenging myself. I love the feeling of pushing my body and testing my limits. And I can get that, as you say, from other other outlets. And I still love the game. I still coach it. And it's still, like day to day, it's still the, the one thing that defines me as a person. But I don't feel the need to go on court and compare myself to 10 years ago when it's just not the same. Yeah, but I'm sure you know your competitive spirit now comes from the fact of the programs you're involved in in the US and the college stuff and almost living vicariously through those results in that you're able to take teams from a certain level to another. Don't get away from that. That's still competition. You know, yeah. that's you taking that and saying, look, we've, we've done this. We, You know, there's a competitive spirit no matter what. If you've played something professionally, there's no way in your life you will not be competitive at whatever else you do. And you know, one of the good things I would say, like looking at my business world, there's a, a quite a successful oil hedge fund um, called uh, Andurand. It's a, a guy called Pierre Andurand. He basically only employs, or not only, but a lot of his employees are super sports people. Like he's got Olympic rowers, he's got a South African Olympic swimmer in his you know, stable of employees. And he sees a thing in them, rightly or wrongly, that they will be competitive in life and they will do well in their chosen worlds after they've stopped competing. I'm biased in saying this, but I think he's right to a degree. Doesn't mean they'll be the best in the world, but you'll be damn sure that they won't leave any stone unturned in trying to be as successful as they can be in a firm. And what sort of employee do you want in a firm? So, so Steve, you're telling me there's a chance in the working world. Uh, you must give me uh, Pierre Anderan's number. <laughs> uh, I reckon it's ex-directory. All right, fair enough. Cheers. <laughs> so listen, before we wrap up this segment of the interview, I uh, want to talk a little bit about your wedding day. And I mean, you know what? I'm just going to let you take it away from there. So as is typical, most wedding days are all centered around the, the bride. <laughs> um, mine, you could say, was a slightly bit different. First of all, Kelly and I had been together 15 years, 16 years before we got married. Nice. Um, Keeping them keen. Yeah, just we were just never sure she was the right one or not. <laughs> three, three kids, three girls, you know, I'm done for anyway. So, you know, um, we decided we'd get married a couple of years ago. And so we'd actually in. put we'd actually put the wedding back six months for one of my mates because he works. He tours with a band uh, around the world. And he said, this is a weekend I could do. And I said, okay, right, that's it, done and dusted. That's going to be the day of the wedding. We had it all arranged. Uh, coincidentally, my mate then didn't turn up at the wedding because <laughs> the band were a bit selfish and played another gig and he couldn't come home. Oh, no. So that was a bit shit. Yeah. But anyway, um, once we'd had it arranged, I then realised that the uh, British Open Masters was being held at Collets and I was getting married at Roehampton Club. 
which is about four miles across Richmond <coughs> Park um, to go to. And so I come home one night and I thought I'd float this by the missus uh, and I said, we might have an issue with the wedding date. Brave man. Yeah. And the very lucky thing, whenever you do any of this sort of stuff and you try and arrange your wedding date, is make sure your wife's got a good bit of wine in her, or wife-to-be has a good bit of wine in her, and um, is more acquiescing what you're going to say. So she was at home with a friend having a drink, and uh, she turned around and said to me, don't tell me it's squash. (laughs) And I said, well, it's, you know, the British Open Masters is on at Collets, and it starts on the Wednesday, finishes on the Sunday, um, sure I can play that and see how it goes and she just looked at me and said no don't do this to me do not say you're going to play squash on our wedding day and I said well if you really don't want me to do it I won't but I won't be doing much Wednesday Thursday Friday beforehand we'll probably be beaten anyway by then so it'll be all right (laughs) so then she just and then she took another drink of her white wine and went actually you've been doing this to me for 15 years why are you going to stop now? Go on, do it. <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> so I entered the British Open. I very I saw them when the draw came out. I was seeded number two. Uh, behind Scott Handy was number one. I was number two seed. And I then emailed the other eight possible quarter finalists that I would meet uh, in the tournament. Or sorry, eight possible semi-finalists that I would meet in the tournament. In, into it and I sent them an email saying look this may sound a bit strange but if I was to meet you in the semi-finals of the tournament on Saturday would you be you know acceptable to play me at Roehampton Club in between my wedding ceremony and reception <laughs> <laughs> and of the eight people um, seven responded and said absolutely no problem that would be fantastic. Are you really going to play squash on your wedding day? <laughs> and uh, one other person who actually shall remain nameless said, no, he didn't want to do it. Oh, come on. Hang him up, man. <laughs> I'm not hanging him. I'm actually not going to hang him. Come on. Um, he left you hanging. <laughs> no, but um, I'll not say it who it was, other than the fact that when what I was, was watching first name? one of the last 16 matches, one of my wedding in guests was playing this individual in the last 16. He'd never beaten him before. He ended up beating him 3-1. Okay, so we can look at the results. You can look at the results. He ended up beating him 3-1. I was sitting behind the court watching. He came off court, went past me, gave me a fist pump and went, that's your wedding present. <laughs> so uh, end up. So that was the only bit that was going to be an issue. Um, so anyway, I ended up making the final. Oh, sorry, I ended up making the semi-final. Yep. And I played a German slash Croatian guy called Manuel Fistenik. Um, And he was so, you know, generous and saying, look, absolutely no problem. I'll play you whenever you want, whenever you want. We arranged for him to come to the wedding. You know, we got married at one o'clock in the afternoon. And at the end of the wedding ceremony, um, the lady, the, I can't remember what they called, the notary, whoever it is that marries you, turned around and said, um, and at two o'clock today, there will be the semi-final of the British Open <laughs> Men's Over 35 Squash Championship. So you hadn't told anyone who came to the reception? Nobody had a clue. 
Nobody had a clue what was going on. It was literally just one of those things. And everyone looked at each other and goes, oh, that's really funny, Steve. I always play squash all the time. That's really <laughs> funny. And then literally they all sort of copped on that actually this was actually going to happen. I was. So at Roehampton, they have a lovely uh, viewing court with a seat for about 150 to watch. And I've got to say, it was the best dressed squash gallery you've ever seen. Um, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic thing to do. I remember going on court and after about three rallies, I felt absolutely exhausted. <laughs> I was literally emotionally just, I didn't think what was happening really. And I lost the first game against the guy and I thought, what do I do here? This is just unfair. Because the, the crowd was incredible because they were all there to support me, obviously. Yeah. And they were getting kicked out of the wedding. <laughs> um, but at the same time, they were so supportive of Manuel because he'd manned up and, you know, changed all his plans and had agreed to play me squash at my wedding and in my home club. So it was quite a weird thing where people really weren't sure who to support in the end. Yeah, yeah. Of course, all my good mates were cheering and yelling for him, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But one thing, uh, one redeeming memory I have of it was, I think I lost the first guy. I won the first, I just about won the first, and then I lost the next two. And I was sitting down, I think it was after the second or third game. And Peter Marshall came down to talk to me and Stacey Ross came down to talk to me. And had these two guys, so X number top 30 in the world, X number two in the world, yeah. giving me advice on what to do. And I looked over and Manuel was sitting on his own. And so I motioned to one of the guys and it was one of the guys who's quite a good player to go and talk to him. And they went down and then started giving Manuel support for the match and, uh -huh. and advice. And it was just a brilliant thing to do. It was just, it was great. Now, obviously, he didn't tell him very good because he went from being 2-1 up to losing 3-2. <laughs> so one, and, uh, what, what do you reckon the advice he was given? <laughs> do not beat him in his wedding or you'll ruin his day. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll ruin his wife's day and the rest of his <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. But no, to be honest, actually what happened to me was I was emotionally exhausted for the first couple of games and then I started to come back into it and then yeah. I physically became quite good towards the end of the match. It was good, but it was just a great experience. It was one of the strangest things to ever happen. And like, you know, it's, an, it's a credit to my missus to know who I am and what I do. Yeah. And to actually embrace the process of my squash and the fact that it could take over our wedding day um, and just become synonymous with it. And the funny thing is, you know, so many people I meet will now say, did you really play squash on your wedding day? Or people who are at the wedding you know, every wedding's brilliant. Your wedding was amazing. Everyone's wedding's amazing. Yeah. But they will just say, you know, it was just a, such a strange and interesting part to the wedding, the fact that you were able to do this and involve all the people who were there and yeah. part Yeah, I still really regret being stuck in Florida and not being able to come back for that. Uh, well, that's just because it was free booze. <laughs> yeah, not for the squash. <laughs> See, only time you'll get a Balamina man giving out free drinks. <laughs> yeah. Although, a, a lovely little anecdote to end that. A lot of my friends come over from Northern Ireland for from Balamina especially. And a few of them didn't realise it was free booze all day. <laughs> so they were getting absolutely leathered into the booze at like one o'clock, two o'clock. So they thought this will finish at about four or five. <laughs> yeah. And then it took one of them to turn around and say, you do know it's free all night. <laughs> like, no, no way. No way. Richardson never, never would do that. Absolutely no chance. And they said, no, it's free all night. And they're like, 
we had about 10 pints just to get it in for free. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so the drunkest people at the wedding were my Northern Irish mates who all thought they'd have to pay for booze. <laughs> but yeah, look, for me, it's a great thing. You know, how much will I thank Kelly for letting me play squash on my wedding day? Look, it's absolutely brilliant. It's amazing to be able to do so. It's Mabel just involved. And she knows who I am and she knows that squash yeah. is a big yeah. part of our lives. And you know, not so much hers, but mine. And then inadvertently, it's part of her life because she has to listen, watch and get involved. Yeah. Now, I took Kerry to a PSA event in Gibraltar on our honeymoon. But uh, I think you just completely, that's just different level. I can't compete with that. <laughs> well, Good. That's, that's amazing, Stevie. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, listen, be sure to uh, send me on Pierre Anderan's number. And, yeah. Yep. 0800 XXX. <laughs> Is there X on, on the phone? Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Nice one. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up this part there. Thanks, Barthes. All right, that concludes the Back to Front Stevie Richardson interview. What a man. Afterwards, we caught up and we started talking a little bit about Stevie, uh, some of his performances at the World Teams in 2013, and also Chris's take on how he ended up stopping playing competitive squash when there was no one really around him and getting back into it again when he moved to New York. Who would he have... Like, uh, the thing I wanted to ask him that I... But uh, conversation kind of switched. Like the reason I kind of fell out of love with competition was because I went to freaking St. Lawrence and there's no one on the team that that was really that good. And then no one in the community that played squash. Then at Brown, same type of thing. I mean, uh, no, no one, who, no one who could beat me. And then, and then no, no, uh, no one in the community that was really like really strong. And the guys actually told me I wasn't allowed to play league. I would have tipped the scales too much if I would have played and then and then Dickinson same thing yeah so then now like getting back into New York like I just imagine if I would have moved to New York as a 22 year old I probably would have been been loving it you know you could you could actually do a lot more of like what he's doing where you, you get enough good squash that you can think about winning national you know playing nationals playing against the yeah. young guys for me, that just wasn't really an option with no one around for six years, eight years, eight years, actually. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, he's always, like, played, I suppose, there's all the leagues. Like, there's Bath Cup on a Monday, Surrey Cup on a Wednesday, National League every now and again on a Tuesday. Was there Middlesex League, Stu? Yeah, I thought Surrey Cup was Thursday and something else on a Wednesday or... Yeah, no, Surrey's on a Wednesday. Only, you know, because yeah. he used to play it. So you don't even really need to train. You just play matches every like three days a week and then have a hit. Pretty have much. A hit on the weekend. They're all strong. Like Surrey Cup is really strong. Who would he have played for the US? He played actually he played a young fella. Do you remember Stu Dillon? Dylan Murray. Yeah. Okay. That was it was some he, he so just when you were talking, I pulled up his results from that. It says here he played Dylan first before he played Jens. No, we played Germany first uh, on the first day. And then the next day we played the US. And he came off after the third game. He went 2-1 up. And myself and Derek went down to him to give him a bit of a... And he's sitting down. He's got his hands in his... Uh, he's got his face in his hands like this. He's got the long, the long hair, as you just saw there. And he just looks up and he starts breaking his bollocks laughing. And he's like, I'm absolutely bollocks, lads. 
don't need to say anything to me. And so then myself and Derek just started laughing and he was just, <laughs> I mean, the, the other fella did well in the next game, but he didn't have to do much, I suppose. But in the fifth, I just have no idea. And I could just see him, you know, and he's just these big, massive lunges with reaching the ball. And the guy just, yeah, just didn't know what to do with it in the end. He was, uh, he's a warrior, to be fair. He won, just against Dylan, he won 11-7 in the fifth, 66 minutes. Yeah. Oh, it was brutal. He, oh, he, he was a shell of a man when I was finished. <laughs> oh, oh, what a that's, guy. That's wild, man, to be doing that. What, he would have been 40? Yeah, yeah, he would have been. Running around with those 20-year-olds. Big yeah. time, yeah. Very good. Okay, so in part one of the Alex Goff interview, we talked about how the PSA were coping and what strategies they had in place to resume the world tour. Here we go into part two, and we get into Alex's playing career. He goes through some of his highlights and how he got into his how he got to his current position as the ceo of the psa world tour all right enjoy so i wanted to switch track a little bit and take you right back to the early stages of your career so um i know you went to university but you want to talk a little bit about even before that your junior career how you got into the sport and and what led you to thinking I'm going to go to uni rather? Because I know that was quite uncommon at that time. Like most of the top players back then were going straight on the tour. Um, and obviously yeah, having yeah, that degree has served you well in your current role. So just tell us a little bit about your start in the sport. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think junior career is a bit, <laughs> a bit complimentary. Um, so yeah, so I got thinking right back. I mean, I, I want to say it's nearly 40 years ago. Um, I, I was I was an okay junior. Um, I was I had the pleasure of I had the pleasure of being in the same sort of age group as people like um, Peter Marshall, Stephen Meads. Um, I was a little bit younger than sort of Del 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 Harris and Chris Walker and Robert Graham and those guys, Paul Gregory. Um, and I particularly remember I think the first ever tournament I played, I played Simon Park, who I think I was about twelve and he was about ten and a half, and I got two points. <laughs> he was this prolific junior that just him and Peter Marshall just pretty much won everything. So um, by the time I kind of, by the time I kind of was doing sort of, you know, A-levels and whatnot, I was, I was kind of competing. I was doing all right. And so it was never really a, I was never really on that path of, right, this is it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a squash player. This is what I'm going to do forever, et cetera, et cetera. So uni was a relatively straightforward sort of choice for me because, you know, I was, I was decent at, well, I chose maths in the end, but I was decent sort of, decent student at a levels and and uh you know chose maths for some bizarre reason um but then i think the the, the bit that changed for me probably the, the the real thing that made a big difference and you guys will sort of appreciate this sort of being scottish and irish and and whatnot is that you know you get more opportunities when you're in a you know a smaller country so while i was at uni i was kind of playing for wales pretty consistently um kind of had adrian davis in my ear every two minutes you know training and and sort of you know he was obviously on the tour at that point and got to got to world number 10 but he was he was very much a kind of inspiring kind of person that you know the lunatic that he was he was still pretty inspiring so by the time i sort of got through to the end of uni it was actually kind of a you know a decent level um so the choice at the end of university was either go out into the real world and get a proper job or actually give it a go for a couple of years and that was that was mindset was literally you know see how it goes for a couple of years and and, and go from there um so i think what was the turning yeah. point 
Um, the turning point, it was one or two actually. <laughs> so one of them was, I mean, I think I joined in the September, these, I think I can remember these numbers pretty well. I joined in September 93 and by May 94, I think I was 52. So I'd had a decent start. I got off the bottom of the ranks quite quickly. I remember being power even kind of um, in that period of time. So I got up there pretty quickly. And then about 18 months later, I was still at 52. <laughs> so I did this great start and then just got stuck, um, which kind of took me through to about 96. Um, and then at that point, my son was coming along. He was due at Christmas 96. So the turning point at that point was, I need to earn a hell of a lot more money than I'm earning now <laughs> if I'm going to support if I'm going to support Jaden. So I think kind of '96 started to get a little bit better, moved up the ranks a bit, um, and then yeah, that kind of had this sort of pretty stellar year in '97. A um, couple of big sort of wins, couple of big uh, couple of big tournaments, and sort of yeah, whizzed through the ranks up to sort of top ten. Um, yeah, I was trying to calculate actually when 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 Stuart was mentioning the having to think back to that. So I think I joined in September '93, and I was yeah top ten by September '97. So or November '97 it might have been. So yeah, so yeah, it went pretty quick. So yeah, totally unexpected. I must add, <laughs> it was more just a, you know. Um, and Arthur, you'll know this. So from the, I think one of the big things that changed in terms of the actual level rather than just needing to get through the ranks and earn some, and earn a decent income was, was just the whole Nottingham days. So, yeah. so, you know, moving, moving, moving to Nottingham where there was, you know, the likes of Simon Park and Peter Marshall and Jason Nicholl, um, you know, all top sort of 10, top 16 players um, who would just play. We just, you know, there were no coaches around. We just sort of, we used to all muck in and just play each other day in, day out. And, and getting there as a sort of 50, 52 in the world sort of player, you know, jumping on the coattails of especially Parky and Marsh was was just invaluable, really. Um, I mean, you'd go on court, Marsh was two in the world at the time. And I mean, you'd just find him down there for six, seven, eight hours a day. And you just wander on and, you know, <laughs> play alley games with him for an hour and a half. And then you'd be exhausted and wander off. And then the next person would go on and do the same thing with him, you know. So it, it just kind of pulled everyone's level up. Just, yeah you know just so quickly really you know you started to not you know you just started to just get better almost by default really um yeah it was yeah it was good fun it was it was a, it was a great environment actually um, i stayed like that for years as well because i remember i moved there in 2003 and you still had marsh granted he'd retired parky was making a bit of a resurgence you were still yeah. knocking around i think i was still kicking around for a little while yeah johnny johnny white turned up Whitey was there, yeah. Um, yeah, and again, he was—he really wasn't ranked that. He really wasn't ranked that high when he turned up, and he was, you know, kind of on, kind of on the periphery. You know, still a very good player. Um, you know, and ultimately hit world number one while he was there, which was totally a you know, you know, one point off winning the world championship. You know, and yeah, it, it was—it was just—it was—it was phenomenal, really. Um, the other—the other irony with the whole thing was there wasn't a coach in sight. You know, none of us really had a coach. You know, none of you know we were all kind of just almost just bouncing off each other. Um, you know, we'd all you know I'd speak to Robo, Robo, Chris Robertson was the Welsh coach at the time, was a great coach, but you know I wouldn't necessarily get on court with him very much. Um, yeah. So we just all yeah I don't know it was yeah it was it's certainly an environment whenever I've spoken to sort of pros that are trying to sort of do the next thing or want to improve, 
uh, that that would just be my my main bit of advice sort of through and through is that you know stick yourself in an environment where there's players that are just a you know a lot better than you you know yeah. or better than you and just and just you know just get on court with them as much as possible yeah. you know it's, it's 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 so invaluable as to you know confidence and just you know they 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 pull you along so 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 well it's even just um, inspiring just to be around them yeah. um i remember as when I, when I moved there first and just seeing, you know, Parky getting out of the car. He only lived like 50 metres from the club and he's still there. <laughs> like, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, I saw him get out of the car. I was like, oh, Jesus, there's Parky. And Rooney had said to me, who was another good player, you know, he says, oh, yeah, he only lives up the road. You know. And um, literally 50 yards away as well. <laughs> yeah, so lazy, man. And he wasn't lazy on the court. But you had him. There was you. There was Whitey. And then there was a, like a ton of like unbelievable characters that had played squash and retired or like Matthew Oxley and, and what have you, uh, Spencer. Yeah. Uh, and then you had like your Joey Barrington's, Mad Max Miller, uh, John Rooney, <laughs> Liam Kenny. Like <laughs> Adrian was there for a while. Adrian was yeah, there as well. Adrian actually, was yeah. there for, for a long while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was, there was, there was, you know, that, well, they were not even as much next level, but players. That, that were still around that sort of level that that were just they, they there were so many you know so it was you know and you used to barely even arrange a game you just wander in in the morning and see see who was around that was the, that was the beauty of it you know it was you know there wasn't there wasn't really, there wasn't really a lot of planning involved which was quite well i guess worked to to a certain extent yeah, yeah no it was, yeah it was a good time i mean the club the i'm not sure how many I, we were so fortunate in the the, the Nottingham Nottingham Swisher and Phil Songhurst, who was the manager there at the time. They'd had a couple of good experiences with pros. So Gawain Bryer started there, and there there was a lot of sort of older pros that had, that had gravitated, which is what had sort of started it off. And so the and the membership just seemed to love it. You know that you know we were we would just be there in the day, so we wouldn't really get in in the way of you know people booking courts and whatnot. And so the whole atmosphere was 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 really conducive to you know just letting these pros wander in and out of the club and you know use it as their sort of home and base. Um, and the members were great. They sort of they, you know they really they really embraced it. Um, and that happened for a really long period of time. Yeah, I still remember my my first ever Europeans was two thousand and three, which was the year that Nottingham hosted, and that was my first ever time being at the club. And it just felt like yeah. it felt like a proper squash club for a start. Yeah, as you say, the members were down every day cheering and watching as much squash as they possibly could, and it just yeah, it seemed like a great environment. Um, one one tournament I did want to speak to you about and get your memories on was the World Teams in '99 when you guys made the final in Cairo. So, um, you want to tell us a little bit about what you remember about that? It seems like you were actually in a group with England who you lost to in the group stages. <laughs> And then you went on and played them again in the semi-finals and managed to beat them, turn it around. So, what do you remember from that event? Um, yeah, actually, that uh, yeah, a reasonable amount. Actually, that was a very interesting, very interesting couple of weeks. So we'd had the we'd had the it was '99, wasn't it? Yeah. '99. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we first went to Cairo. We first went to Cairo in '95 for for another World Teams. That was our first experience with Cairo, and we we played a lot. In Cairo, so we were pretty familiar with, you know, pretty familiar with the environment. We were fairly comfortable there. Um, and um, yeah, so myself and uh, myself and Dave Evans, Greg Tippins, and Gavin, I think Gavin Jones was 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 four at the time. 
And uh, I think we'd both, we'd had a world champs. So I'd bombed out in the first round, which was not a great start. So I think I lost in the last 64 in the, in, in the main event. I think I was, I actually was, I didn't, this sounds like an excuse now, but I think I was pretty sick because I ended up not playing the first one or two games in the, in the team event. But um, it was a bit of an incident. You guys might appreciate this as well because it was against the English in the group stages. <laughs> and uh, obviously, group stages for playing England, there's absolutely no point in us killing ourselves. So, you know, Chris had sort of said, you know, go on there, have a bit of a knockabout, you know, see how you feel for the next one. But obviously, we've got a, I think we had Malaysia and maybe even Canada in the, in the, in the rounds coming up. So it's like, you just take it easy. Dave and, I, Dave and I actually had gone off to do our laundry one day because we were there for quite a while, broke down in the cab, nearly got killed on the road and wandered and were basically late for the match. <laughs> um, well, as you know, we weren't technically late. We got there on time, but we would sat outside kind of giggling away about the various things that had happened that day. And we were just playing in a group stage, so there was no dramas. Anyway, we'd sort of upset Stuart Courtney for one reason or another, who was the English manager at the time. Um, so Robbo comes, <laughs> Robbo comes running out and he says, you have, to be, you have to be sat by the court at the start of the match or they're going to claim the match. And Dave, <laughs> Dave just looks at me, typical Dave, he's like, well, we're not trying anyway, so should we just, should we just go and have some lunch coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Robbo, I can see Robbo rolling his eyes, oh, for God's sake, I don't, he didn't want to deal with the hassle. It's like... <laughs> Oh, so he goes back in. Anyway, we wander in about 15 minutes later and lo and behold, Greg Tippins is already like two love down in his match. <laughs> and obviously they hadn't played the match. So the only, reason I, the only reason I mentioned that part of the story is by the time we, uh, by the time we snuck through to the semi-finals, they, they just weren't very impressed with us. Stuart Courtney was really not happy with anything, anything Welsh at that point. Um, and then I, I think we... We actually snuck past, sorry to remember something else, we did sneak past Canada, but they were without Mr. Power. Um, I think I was, I might have even been too left down against Graham riding, um, who had a bit of a wobble and then managed to sneak a win and then Dave won fairly comfortably. So that was the quarters. So by the time we then line up against England again, Stuart Courtney's baying for blood. Um, I think we played P, PJ, I played PJ, Dave played, Parky, and then I think we were Chris Walker was at three. So I think their team was three, four, and six in the world at the time. Um, and then I managed to, I had an average record against PJ, but he also had also, PJ had a bit of a glass arm when he played for England. So I managed to sneak through a 3 1 winner um, in the first match. And then Dave Evans, I, honestly, I really don't remember this so well, was he was about 20 odd in the world. And Parky will remember this as well, I'm sure. He beat Parky in about 25 minutes. It was just ludicrous. His level was just insane. But nothing Parky could do. He was fuming afterwards, but he was just like that. Which he didn't really know what had hit him, really. Um, so, yeah, so lo and behold, we kind of snuck through to, uh, snuck through to the final and uh, had the joys of, uh, joys of playing Cairo in the final in the, in the middle of Cairo Stadium, which turned into basically a big scrap. Because um, I, I had Mr. Barada, um, who was obviously, <laughs> obviously liked, liked leaving his leg out in various guises, and was a bit of a nightmare on court to say the least, especially in Cairo. Um, very random game. I think I was too love. I was actually too love down in about fifteen minutes, um, getting thumped. 
managed to sneak back to all and then yeah still the bane of my life really because if I'd have won that there's absolutely no question the form Dave was on he would have won in, in, in his match I managed to lose 9-5 in the fifth um, and then Dave was playing Omar Alborossi in the next round who, in the next match who he would definitely have been sorry Omar if you're listening but um, <laughs> so yeah so we, we went down we went down 2-0 I don't know we played the third one um, so yeah we were we were pretty close, I think, to, to sneak in the world teams. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a dreamy week because obviously, you know, especially being a country as small as ours and with just only a couple of players, really, you know, Gavin hadn't really started at that point and Greg, Greg was on the tour but never really sort of got that far. So yeah, it was it was it was definitely one. Of, it was definitely a week I will remember. Yeah. And then they had a they had a pretty successful world teams last year as well, the Welsh so. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Joel's Joel and Joel and Tesney are flying the flag. Um, you know, for in the men's and women's game for Wales, which is great. Joel's really pushing on, and Tez is hopefully she'll come back after injury. Um, and then, then yeah, with a bit of backing from the from the other players, a bit of backing from Preedy, and then uh, and then Emir stepped up. So yeah, they 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 really did. They really had a fantastic performance, actually. Yeah, I watched. I was there actually when Creedy played Kleine. I played like a man possessed. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I watched it. I watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's one of those players, Creedy, that you know he's got he's he's got and well had and still got all of this potential. Just never quite sort of turned it into into the world ranking he'd like. But yeah, on his day, yeah, it was uh, yeah phenomenal performance. Yeah, beast. Good. So, do you have much involvement with? Squash and Wales, are you a bit removed from it now with your role and a bit of a conflict with your... No, yeah. I mean, I, I'm only in as much as I speak to Dave still pretty often, but not, you know, not really anything around, you know, what the guys and the girls should be doing, especially. Um, yeah, chat to Dave about it a bit, chat to Joel on and off. I think chat to Joel on and off a while ago, but not, yeah, it's too uh, too com- too conflicting, really. You know, to yeah. be sat at tournaments and chatting, and chatting away about what could happen and who's who's good at this and who's good at that. I tend to try and steer clear of that sort of thing, to be honest. Yeah. A lot safer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just, just moving on towards the end of your career then. Um, and obviously the, the role at PSA came up. I think you started off as CEO, uh, which is That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Lee's current role. Um, yeah. And you were in that for a total of about seven months, it seems, before you got, well, the guy who was leading seemed to have left pretty quickly and straight away you're put into the hot seat. So do you want to tell us how that came about? Yeah, so I think I, this, the, the story from the sort of the administration side of things, I, I guess as a, I ended up getting onto the board as a, you know, obviously the, the, the board of directors has always had sort of player representation. Um, and myself and I think it was Tony Hands and actually Graham Riding um, ended up getting, you know, as, as relatively disgruntled players around about 2003, might have been the end of 2002, kind of put ourselves forward to the board and, you know, we weren't particularly happy with, with how things were going um, at the time. I think we just had a period of time where we had two years without a world championship, um, which was just felt, you know, dreadful. So we saw, rather than just you know moaning about it, we thought we'd try and get on the board and see if we could make a difference. Um, I'm not sure we did for many years. Actually, we were on there for about I was probably on there for about five, five and a half years. Um, 
but what it meant was actually I, we were pretty hands-on and we were trying to do you know there was a lot of work to do in the background you know PSA at the time was a really kind of a small you know barely any staff uh, down in Cardiff so the board was actually trying to do quite a lot so by the time I was getting you know the legs were getting heavy and I was getting a bit weary of running around the court yeah which was yeah middle of 2008 um it was time to kind of, you know, the, the the position of chief exec sort of came up and I thought, you know, this this was the time to, I, I mean, I applied for the chief exec job at the time, but basically that was only because that was about the only role, you know, we literally had, Sheila was the tour director. Um, they were they were looking for a chief exec and there were two or three other ladies in the office, you know, it was a really small staff. So um I didn't get it, which is probably, <laughs> which was, which was fine at the time. But what the board did do was they sort of thought, right, you know, we have got to start moving this on. And they created, the premise created another role, obviously the, the, the operations role to just start trying to expand the staff really. Um, kind of June, June, 2008. Um, what then kind of happened and, and Richard, Richard Graham, who was the guy that they brought in, you know, came across great an interview and he, you know, good credentials and whatnot. Um, the main issue was it's just that with such a small organization at the time there was so much to do he just got overwhelmed i think he just you know stuff wasn't happening he was you know it was just it was just you know the volume of work that i think that was happening around that time was 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 pretty high um so by the by the january february he just kind of almost just threw his towel in really um and at which case it's like well you know well we might as well give you know, give Alex a go for a little while and see how he gets on. Um, Not so, too, yeah. too bad. Eleven was, years uh, later. I know. Yeah. Well, I had I had jet black hair at the start. I think within <laughs> about eighteen months, I was completely bright. I was completely grey. So you didn't dye it grey. It just just turned. <laughs> no. Yeah. Funnily enough, no. Funnily enough. <laughs> but no, it's yeah. I mean, it's yeah. The the last the last yeah. It's it feels it feels like it's go it's going well but it could be going better but there's there's been some certainly big some some big periods of time where you know squash tv was obviously one of the things that we launched relatively early on um through through a fair number of reasons one was that one was out of necessity because we couldn't get we weren't getting anywhere with tv channels you know we weren't getting anywhere with broadcasters so we kind of went down the we went down the streaming route really early on um took some sort of pretty high risk well, I can say this now I wouldn't have said it at the time but some pretty high risk decisions in terms of what we were going to invest into all of that but we had to make it work pretty quickly you know we I think we went from you know with some of our expenditure at the start was high to get that thing going you know um, yeah. and at the heart of that really was trying to you know make you know make sure the events were on make sure they were looking as good as they could make sure we were filming it as well as we could and then try and get as many people watching it as quickly as we could um, and trying to keep that kind of, you know, juggle all of those things, um, you know, at pace, really. Um, so it was a tough, it was a tough few years, I think, you know, we were still a really small staff, but when we were, we were spending quite a lot to get that kind of platform yeah. up and running. Did you feel, um, then, you know, as that was the early years of your, of your tenures, CEO, did you feel like under a little bit of pressure knowing that that was such a big investment, it was such a big choice? And I'm sure, I don't like, did you feel as well at the time? I, I remember being on the tour in 08 and I was pretty excited when you were taking the position and you were being involved, you know, as COO and then CEO. 
but I, there was a, there was kind of like it was not 50 50 but there was definitely a crowd that were uncertain unsure that that was such a good idea and i'm sure you would have felt that and that would have piled a little bit more pressure on yourself or were you able to detach yourself from from that and just say i'm going to do this i i, I really believe what i'm doing here yeah that's that's that yeah that's a good point actually i'd sort of i'd almost forgotten that bit <laughs> there was you know and i was very aware of it as well at the time yeah. you know there was this kind of you know uh, and, and you're right there was a really big split between no no it's great we've got you know we've got someone that's hugely passionate about it they're a squash person through and through they're going to fight tooth and nail for this thing yeah. and then there was the other you know another big percentage going yeah but what does he know about business and what does he know about you know tv and what does he know about all of those that that side of things and you know running a business at this sort of level so I, I don't know whether I necessarily felt the pressure. I just knew that it had to work. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't necessarily a question of, you know, I don't think there was any ever stage where I thought this isn't going to, you know, we aren't going to move this forward and it's going to, it's going to grow. It's just a case of, yeah, whether I'd killed myself before I'd actually managed to get to that point because uh, failure, it, it sounds a bit cheesy, but failure sort of wasn't really an option at that point. Um, and, and, you know, we, we were profitably again within about 18 months, two years. And actually, we've yeah, we've, we've never really looked back from that in terms of you know the the, the fund side of things. And you know, I think we've done eight eight years or nine years of sort of straight profit since then. Oh, um, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's good. Decent. I think the figures are. I think we're tenfold. I think we're tenfold, or maybe even a bit more now from when from when it started. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it's crazy. Yeah, crazy just to think about what the game would look like without squash tv because it's almost yeah. so ingrained now in the in the sport that it's hard to imagine squash without squash tv um, no it is yeah 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 it's um and, and uh, one of the one of the i think one of the things that's really helped or made it hang on my speakers are, is it give me a sorry second. i'll throw edit this out <laughs> now's your time to Cut swear for that yeah <laughs> wait for this one to work again that was died you okay i'll leave both in That's right I'll, I'll start again um yeah they're both working uh i think one of the big one of the big sort of uh, i guess positives is that when you start speaking to companies like eurosport and facebook you know and they're you know it actually start i think to you know, pay, you know, decent kind of rights fees, you know, you start to feel like, you know, it's all, it's all been worthwhile. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, there are a lot of sports out there, I think, especially, especially a lot of sports out there that were at sort of, or are at squash's level that don't do anything like the amount of kind of output that, that we now manage to do. And the team, the team's growing really, really positively and healthily, you know, or at least we were up until sort of COVID happened. Um, and I think the next couple of years, the output's only going to, you know, it's going to keep improving and, you know, really kind of sort of move on to the next level, really. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, we're all former players, but also fans of the sport. And it's just such a good product. It's so good. Like, we're, I just love getting home after a day. And if there's a big tournament on, not looking at anything on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and going <laughs> down and watching the games as if it's live, it's, oh, it's happy days. Yeah, oh, that's great to hear. That's really good. That's really good. I mean, I'm sure the I'm sure the players themselves. I mean, initially as well, when we started doing it like properly, the, the I think the players just loved the fact as well that they were actually, 
you know, on a decent platform and starting to actually, you know, the next big thing is to make them kind of, you know, stars. And they're, they're definitely sort of stars within the sport. We've just got to kind of sort of push them onto that that next kind of level, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I wish we had some sort of footage. I wish we had better footage of the sort of the period of time, sort of, you know, especially just before, say, I was playing, you know, when it was, you know, all of your hang here and Rod Martin and Tristan Nancaros and Dick Miles and stuff, you know, I wish it, it's, it feels a shame that we haven't got kind of really, you know, top-notch footage of all of that. Um, I'm sure the players of sort of today will look back and actually be quite proud of what they can sort of look back on themselves because there's some bloody good, <laughs> some bloody good squash being played these days. Yeah, <laughs> and then you're right, like in 20, 30 years' time, like those games and matches will have stood the test of time in terms of being able to look at an actual footage of, yeah. you know, Rami or Shabagi or yeah, absolutely. yeah, it's amazing. We're gonna we're gonna have the VR goggles. We're gonna be like <laughs> sitting. On, we're gonna be sitting on the tin, like watching, like absolutely. we're playing lives. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've uh, I have had that meeting with Facebook actually. I'm just waiting for the next step on that one. <laughs> wow! Wow! World exclusive. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Our squash coming to you soon. Yeah, I'm due an answer, put it that way. <laughs> so, yeah, that'd be cool. What is your vision then moving forward over the next sort of five years? Obviously, the short term, you're looking to get the tour back up and running as close to normal as possible once all the coronavirus stuff is out of the way. But do you have a plan or a vision for the next five years? And what does that look like? uh yeah we yeah we do we've been we've actually been using the time kind of now amongst sort of other other <clears throat> bits we've been trying to do to actually work out what that kind of next 10 year kind of plan sort of five to 10 year plan is um and tommy tommy and lee have been just doing an incredible amount of work on it as well to try and drive that forward and get sort of sign off from the board and whatnot um we really sort of feel at the stage now where like like the, the product is is decent but i think we really need to make the events you know really sing a bit you know the events is it's concentrating on actually making those events way way better than they are you know you look at you look at the sort of level of production in things like tennis and, and whatnot and, and we've really got to sort of up our game i think on that front um but to do that i think we actually need the the, the next plan of attack is actually to go out there and actually try and find some investment you know and, and try and find some real kind of some help out there, someone, someone with some dollars that can see the sort of, you know, a, a business plan that we're trying to sort of put together and sort of value now um, alongside, you know, a, a big kind of, you know, sort of sports marketing agency that will also buy into it. Because um, I think we've sort of, it, it feels to a certain extent that we've taken it as far as we can without a lot more kind of, you know, a real big push. Um, so that's our kind of main aim now is to is to bring in some you know some real kind of proper dollars you know the next level of, of funding um get some sort of sports marketing help in at you know a really kind of big level or you know like an img level or an in front level or lagarde those sorts of guys <clears throat> and, and use all their networks and, and connections uh you know and expertise and you know and really really drive it forward so they, i think that's that's kind of our main ambition in the next you know once we get through this next sort of tricky period there's, there's been um, you know, talk for a long time about having a sort of a global tour sponsor as opposed to individual event sponsors and and obviously having some big brand associated with the tier the tour year round would help with that a lot but is that something you're yeah. pursuing or looking at or maybe we, yeah 
Yeah, that, is, that one, that, yeah, when you look at the sort of things we've been trying to do for, say, the last 10 years, that one's not ever left the to-do list, to be honest. <laughs> it's one of, the, one, of the big, one of the big drivers of trying to get, you know, the production better and squash TV better and get onto more broadcasters was that, you know, we were trying to, we were trying to sort of get more eyeballs on the sport and then from the more eyeballs, then we would go to the big sort of companies and, and you know, and sort of bring them in as this overarching kind of sponsor um it's it's been difficult well no it's actually been very difficult to this point the land the, the sponsor land the sponsorship landscape kind of changed on us a little while ago in 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 terms of you know football hoovers up the lion's share of everything then you've got like rugby cricket you know tennis to a certain extent golf to a certain extent and actually when you look at say someone even yeah, a good example is someone like the wta who had kind of sony ericsson for a long time you know, they haven't got a tour sponsor. Um, you know, they actually struggle to, it's a really difficult thing to, to pin down these days. Um, so whilst we've done tons and tons of work in, it, in the background, you know, we've probably been on about our second or third agency going out there and selling it. It's actually a tough one. Um, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to stop doing that, but it's, it's not been anywhere near as, uh, as easy as we thought it would be. Um, but yeah, we're yeah. So that hence the hence the sort of not necessarily re, not necessarily refocusing, but you know, if we can if we can bring in some kind of a bit more investment in the first instance, those sorts of dollars could go towards actually trying to pull in some bigger sort of brands, which is where I think the big kind of sports marketing firms will help us. Um, but yeah, it's 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 certainly still very high up the list. Could you see the current climate maybe being to Squash's advantage? Just in the sense that I would imagine being a tour sponsor for the men's tour in tennis would be very expensive, where it just might be, I mean, I would say that the product is better in squash, but I'm biased, but maybe it's a case that it wouldn't be as expensive to sponsor the PSA World Tour. And so that might no, be absolutely, more Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Um, you know, one thing, one thing that we've definitely got going for us is that, you know, um, um, there are some good sponsors in squash, you know, the JP Morgans of the world and um, the sponsors like that. But actually, we're a relatively blank canvas. So if, you know, if you do want to come in and suddenly have this overarching kind of, you know, you know, owning everything, it like, like you say, it just is not going to be anywhere near as expensive as, you know, trying to sponsor, you know, UEFA or FIFA or, you know, any of those sorts of big properties. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, yeah. Affo uh, nicely affordable would probably be a good way of putting it <laughs> and great value for your book for your book and great value absolutely yeah absolutely <laughs> we're, we're still working on getting our first sponsor to send us to dubai to cover the uh cover the big event <laughs> <laughs> right exactly that event isn't even there anymore chris so we uh, could just be on holiday <laughs> yeah perfect <laughs> so you got one of the sponsors for holiday <laughs> podcasting from dubai on a tournament happening in somewhere else <laughs> perfect <laughs> joe rogan's just signed his first like 100 million dollar exclusive rights agreement with spotify so a bit like tennis we're happy to do it for a little bit less than that <laughs> no it's great no it's, it's great you guys starting this up no it's awesome i mean i think there's there's been some really good stuff come out of come out of this this situation and and you know you guys doing this is is, is just one of them it's brilliant it's really good and i think in the long term in the long run, I think the whole community yeah, he's come together so well. Um, there's some really positive stuff coming out of it. Yeah, no, it, it has. There's definitely some silver linings to take away from all this. Well, 
Alex, we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for coming on. We know you're obviously very busy and you've got a lot of layers to kind of work out. We appreciate all the insight that you gave us. And yeah, we obviously wish you, all those close to you, all the happiness and healthiness going forward. And, and we look forward to the PSA World Tour resuming. Happy days. Awesome. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on, guys. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Alex. Happy days. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. We're having a buzz doing this. Hope you guys are somewhat enjoying what you hear. And if you do, don't be shy in sharing it uh, amongst your friends. No point in keeping it to your shelf. Yes. Uh, thanks again to Alex Goff and to Stevie Richardson for coming on the show. Both great talkers, made for compelling listening and for loads of different reasons and covered a lot of a variety of different topics in different tones. So happy days. Yeah, thanks again, everyone. And hopefully we might have big episode with a superstar on next week but we might not <laughs> all right cheers